I wish we could go through this teaching today in Luke 23 and then re-sing all these songs. Um, I, I think I got to enjoy them a little more knowing what we're covering in more detail. We're coming to the close of our series entitled, This is the Way. And we're down to the last two chapters of this gospel, the story of Jesus written by Luke, who is very intentionally and in orderly fashion led us to what happens next. And we're not going to pretend like we don't have the advantage of looking back and knowing what happens next as we read these two chapters. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And there are not two more defining moments in history for the Christian faith than these, his death and his resurrection. There are other defining moments, but there's no two more important, more defining moments than these two. These two stand at the center as massive, real, historical, on this earth but from heaven events that are markers of what God's kingdom is about and what we as God's kingdom people are to be about. So I appreciate Ray taking us through the very eventful Luke 22 last week. Today, again, we're in Luke 23. And now we're going to zoom in on the narrative as Jesus approaches and then hangs on the cross. Let's pray. Father, I pray on behalf of everyone here and and at home within the sound of my voice that right now that we would actually be able to do what I'm about to pray. I pray that we give everything and everyone to you. That you would bring your spirit into each of us and that we would be capable of doing this, that we would give everyone and everything to you. And that you in it just enlarge our minds, enlarge our hearts, enlarge all the pathways that exist down into our spirit, into our soul, and let this chapter do what you intend, what you have always wanted for us. In the name of the very Christ that we focus on, I pray. Amen. All right. Luke 23, starting in verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led Jesus off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He's talking about the Jewish nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. Now he's saying, they're saying he's threatening the Roman nation. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man, but they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started up in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked, is the man a Galilean? When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, that's Galilee, he sent him to Herod, who 
also happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he'd hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressed him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. So, of course, this chapter is about Jesus, and this is, a, this is high drama that we have, I will not do an adequate job of build, you know, building it up to its proper intensity. But the way I want to approach this drama that Luke's recording here is by drawing your attention to the minor characters around Jesus as he approaches the cross. Of course, Luke is telling the story as it happened, but he has picked details from the story to communicate a certain message to his audience and for all time to us. And so in this section, you notice Jesus faces Pilate. Now, Pilate was the Roman leader in this province He represents Caesar, who represents Rome, who represents the state, right? That's that's the power he's in front of right there. But he also faces King Herod. Now, King Herod, we don't get a lot of him, but you'll remember him. He is a Jewish man, and he has been appointed by the state to be the king of the Jews, So these two guys, we know, tolerate each other. That's all they do. They don't like each other. They tolerate each other. They have to respect each other's influence, their power that they wield over their respective people groups. But I guarantee you, just like many of you are aware of today, there's a power struggle between Pilate and Herod that represents something that was happening then that is still happening today. Tell me it's not true. There is a power struggle between the state and between religion. So it seems to me that Luke might be doing here for his audience by picking those details, by bringing Jesus face-to-face with the political figurehead in his world and then the Jewish figurehead It goes beyond what we already know. We already know. He doesn't need to reiterate that Jesus and his kingdom stand at odds with how the secular governments of the world operate. We already know clearly in Luke that Jesus and his kingdom stand at odds with how the institutional religion operated in Judaism. We already know that. He added this detail that to me at first seems like it has no bearing on what Jesus is about to do on the cross for us spiritually. He just adds this thing that Pilate and Herod became friends. Up to this point, they had been enemies. Up to this point, they'd been enemies. Why did he add this? I think he's taking it beyond. Everything he's built up, he's taking it beyond that. And it seems to me that he's doing this, by adding this, he's doing it that 
He's trying to show us that I can't help but think that, the, that Luke's readers are being warned of something that was important then, and tell me it's not true, it's important now. It can happen in any age where a friendship between church and state can happen. A cooperation between secular and religious that might just find themselves on one side with Jesus and his kingdom way on the other. Tell me it's not true. It absolutely can happen, and it does happen. When your Christian brother or sister tries to make their political stance and their religious stance friends, this could be happening. When you try to make your religious stance and your political stance friends, and you fight for your political stance with the same fervor that you're supposed to fight for Christ... When you do that, beware. And this is done on both sides of the aisle. I have seen Democrats that are Christians and Republicans that are Christians fight both, not just speaking this way, but having the demeanor of they are the one with the moral high ground here. If that's you, beware. You too, like Herod and Pilate, friends though they may be, you might be finding yourself on the opposite side of Jesus and his kingdom. Just something to learn on the way to the cross. Let's keep going. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. That's their accusation. I've examined him in your presence, and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them. Why, what crime has this man committed? I found no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Now, as they led him away, this is to be crucified, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. So, again, there's so much here, but just looking through this lens. Just as Luke used Pilate and Herod to deliver a message of warning to Christ's followers. It seems he's using Barabbas and Simon here to give us a tangible view of exactly what Jesus is about to do for us on that cross and exactly how it is we should respond to what he's doing on that cross. So Barabbas, we're looking at Barabbas and Simon here. So Barabbas is a sinner in the text. There's no debate. It's clear, it's not argued, there's not a, a, a hint that he is not guilty of sin. And not only is he 
earn death because of murder, which we would put up there towards the top, he's also guilty of exactly what they are accusing Jesus of. That's insurrection, of creating an uprise in the city against the government. That is what he is guilty of and being put to death for, and that's what Jesus is being accused of and is innocent. And so in Barabbas, you see it in Barabbas, we can easily find ourselves a physical illustration of the gospel, of the message, of the cross in particular. Jesus, the innocent non-sinner, is taking the place, enduring the suffering, and dying the death that belongs to Barabbas, the legit sinner. The message to us. Jesus is dying to take our place. And then Luke brings us to Simon. He throws this in. We learn in the other Gospels. Well, we we know that criminals often were forced to carry their own cross to their own execution just as part of the punishment. We learn in other Gospels, Jesus was tired. He was struggling. And so Simon is grabbed, and he does literally here what Jesus has already mentioned two or three times in Luke to his followers that they are to do, and that is to take up the cross and follow him. He's already instructed them, this is what your life will look like if you follow me. You'll take up your cross and you will follow me. And so we have a physical illustration of this here, of what we're supposed to do. In response to him taking our place on the cross, we are supposed to take up the cross and we're to follow Jesus, to live for him because of what he's done for us. I'm going to ask our Lord's Supper servers to go ahead and take your places over here. We're going to take the bread here in a minute. But before that, I want to tell you a, a story that I remember from a long time ago to try to, I mean, I'm reading the text and it's, I'm praying the Holy Spirit is impressing upon you the intensity of the narrative at this point, right? But it's been a week since we last talked about the narrative. So I want to tell a story to try to, in preparation for what we're remembering here. And in attempts to increase the intensity and the drama and the, the, the emotion that is supposed to be happening here. Um, it's a story that a buddy of mine, a hero of mine, Paul Woodward, he is a minister in the inner city of Houston, and he's done that for decades, and he's a real m- hero to me. But anyway, he was, we were talking one time, and, and he told me this amazing story of, uh, and I don't know how he met this man. I, I, my picture is, it's been decades since he told me the story that he was Paul found himself at a support group for people who had had uh, body replacements you know transplants and this was a man that had had a heart transplant and he always needed a heart transplant for a long time while his kids were raising and he told the story at this support group is how I remember it that if I remember it right some of these details might be wrong but what what Paul said he said was that his sweet daughter, who has just so for him and loves him, was leaving the house and going to college. And so they hugged, and, and she prayed this precious prayer for her daddy, you know, and it included, God, would you just give my dad a matching heart, you know? So that very day, this guy said, he gets a call from the hospital saying, we have a heart, it's being prepped, you need to get down there, you need to be prepped, it's being transported, it's always a very fast thing when this happens. It happens, and he wakes up, 
and, he, and transplant went perfectly. He learned this from his wife who was standing right beside his bed and grabs his hand and, and she's smiling and she's weeping as she tells him that his daughter had gotten in an accident that day on the way to school and it was her heart that matched. I, I mean, he is, he is alive. He is in that bed alive because his daughter died. Now, this is not a perfect analogy to what Jesus did on the cross, but I'm not looking for I'm looking for where it is the same. This man is simultaneously alive. He has the best news of his life and the worst news of his life because his daughter died so that he could live. And a lot of times this is what I think and maybe what many of you think when you hear the story of Jesus dying. It's not right. I should die, that dad probably said. Not my daughter. I don't want this. I mean, and and that's what we do with Jesus. It's unfair. It's not right that Jesus should die. It's the worst day in history. Not the best day. I should die. I deserve this. And so this is a gripping reality that this man is doing. But what really got me, what really got me was what Paul told me this man said. How do you live each day knowing that you have your daughter's heart? And here's what he said. Listen, church, he said, I'll never forget this. He said, every morning I wake up and I remember that it is my daughter's heart inside of me that has given me life and sustains my life. So every day I get out of bed and I decide to live large, to live large for her because of what she had to do so that I could live. Let's pray. God somehow merged this this text with this story and somehow bring to life in us what we are moving to in this story of Luke. Help us remember it anew. Help us embrace the difficulty, the unfairness, the injustice of Jesus dying. No, no, he's innocent. I should die. Anyone who's dealing with that, God, overcome that. And anyone who just needs to re-engage with just what's been done for them. God, with every move, the tray coming into their hand, the, the view of the bread in that tray, the reaching and touching that, that bread, the breaking of that bread, the holding of it in their hand, the passing of the tray to someone else. And then the opening of the mouth and the consuming of that bread. Every step, God, and everything it can mean, reveal it to us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Verse 27, large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs who never bore and the breasts that never nursed. 
Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. For if men do these things, when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they were, they, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. So again, just like Luke used Pilate and Herod and then Barabbas and Simon to deliver messages, he now uses these two other men being crucified to declare once again what's happening here on the cross and how to respond. It's a slightly different angle on how to respond and what he's doing, but reiterating it anyway, he, he, by having the first criminal insult him and, and, and tell him to save him from this death, it gives Luke the chance to put those two messages in the mouth of this other thief. He says, once again, it's the admission that we're getting what we deserve. Our actions merit our death. If the wages of sin is death, then we as thieves on these crosses, and we who can relate to those thieves on that crosses have to admit if we die, we get what we deserve. But then again, like Simon, an example of how we should respond to this fact that he, an innocent man, is dying in our place. And that is, we should appeal to Jesus. We should appeal to Jesus for any hope in the face of our universal enemy as a human race, and that's death. That's how we should respond. Let's pray. Jesus, we are guilty. We deserve what you are enduring in chapter 23. We've earned it. You have not. And yet, you have stepped in and you have taken our place. And so we call on you. We receive your sacrifice and and we turn to you and call on you and say, remember us. Remember us as we take this cup. Every step, God, when we receive the tray, when we look down at the contents of the cup, we grab the cup, we pass it to, we pass the blood to someone else, to our neighbor. We look at the cup. We decide to open our mouths 
and pour that cup into our mouths and then swallow it, God. I pray your Holy Spirit would move and speak and fill us with exactly what that means for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if, if you're able, I'm just going to read now the, the, the death and the burial of Jesus. And I just want us to stand together as I just read this text. Just, just stand in reverence of this, what's happening. I want to ask you to just, and you can even, you don't have to, you can read along if that's better for you, or close your eyes. I want you to just listen. And that verse, you know, that says that the word of God is living and active. I'm praying that it's living and active right here as I read it. And let anything in here jump out at you. And let any symbolism that God wants to speak to you here at the cross and the burial speak to you. So I'll just read it for you here. It was now about the sixth hour. And darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. There was a man named Joseph a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. You can be seated. How do, we, how do we respond to the crucifixion? How do we respond to the death of Jesus? How do you respond to it? Luke 23 teaches us. It teaches us, first through Simon, we're to call on Jesus. We're to call on this man who's taken our place. We're to call on this God who has taken our place. For any hope, for any hope, to face death and we all will and we all are or we will 
And the thief teaches us the second thing. We're to respond in the face of the cross. And that's to take up our cross and live large for him. I believe us living for Jesus in response to what he did for the cross is necessary thing to do to even receive what he did. You understand what I'm saying? Like for those people who have tried to receive it and go on with their life on their terms, I don't think I have sat with them. I have ministered to many of them. They don't really believe they're forgiven. There's some miracle that happens. I don't know which one comes first, but when you receive truly, and it moves from being an, an academic theological proposal that you read about in scripture and it moves that miraculous 12 inches down into your heart and it explodes and you realize it and you and you you realize what he's done you can't help yourself but live for him like that dad for her for his daughter it was the only thing that helped him bear to go on day to day and i believe it's true for christians I don't know if that comes first or if we take up our cross, we start living for him and slowly but surely or in some revolutionary way, finally, we accept it. We accept that this innocent man that deserved everything from me, this God that deserved everything from me and I did not perform and I still don't, would dare sacrifice himself or his son for me to live. There is, we have to do both. If we try to do really good kingdom works without calling on Jesus, we'll just do some good works here on earth. But it'll be over when we die. If we just call on Jesus, I don't think we really grasp him unless how James says it. You show me a man with faith, I'll show you his Because he's working. He sees it. He can't help himself. It gives us confidence in the face of death and brings the kingdom here. How do we respond to the death of Jesus? How do you respond to it? I think it's whether whether it's your first time ever to consider it or you've been responding to him for decades. This is how we respond. We need to call on Jesus. We need to serve Jesus. We need to live large for him. And who is this invitation opened up to? I think that's even embedded here in these minor characters at the end. Did you ever notice this? There's two main characters. He talks about the crowds, and that has a reason. He talks about the women, that has a reason. He talks about those followers that are looking for froth. But he, he mentions two individuals. Right after this ultimate climactic moment, he mentions two individuals after his death. The first one is right after Jesus dies, and it's a Roman centurion. Okay, you remember at the beginning of the chapter, Pilate? Remember what he represents? Pilate represents Rome. He represents the state. This is someone embedded in that system. So a full citizen who's not just Roman. He fights for Rome. Patriot. And he is the one Luke decides to record. There were probably lots of reactions, but he records this Roman centurion as praising God and acknowledging that this was a righteous man. You go to another gospel, and that gospel author puts in his mouth that he declares him the son of God. A Roman centurion. Why? 
he's saying. And then the second character, the second character you notice is this Joseph of Arimathea. He is on the Sanhedrin. He is, you remember at the beginning? Jesus facing Herod, who represents this figurehead of this religious side of things. He's the king of the Jews. This guy is embedded deeply in that Jewish religious system. And yet, right after, he could have given, he could have told us what Mary did or what John did. Or, but no, he points out what this guy in that system does in solidarity and loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom. Do you see what he's doing? He is saying, even those enemies of Jesus, enemies that become friends in unity against Jesus, can be saved. If he can save those that are colluding, then their systems are colluding to kill Jesus. If he can forgive them, if they're invited, so are you. So are you. Yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But all are invited to the cross because of the cross to call on his name and receive his forgiveness, receive his life, Let his heart beat in yours and every day wake up and say, it's the only way you'll survive. It's the only way you'll believe it. You wake up every day and you remember why your heart's beating, why you're alive and what sustains your life and you decide, I'm gonna live large. I'm gonna live large for him. You will not find a more worthy cause. You will not find a more universal need in the human race than this one right here. Would you come? Would you come to the cross? I'm going to invite our elders and our ministers. To, they're going to move around this room. They're going to spread out in the balcony. And if we can help you in any way, come, come to any of us. But more importantly, come to the cross. Come to Jesus. Let's praise this Jesus and this God.